16. So it's his, sen- his, his sentencing and when he is actually handed over to be crucified. And I know that this is a story that we've all heard before. We've probably heard it a lot of, a lot of times, some of us perhaps. And if that's true, my invitation is that we would just listen to it uh, with new ears this morning. We would listen to it in the light of everything else that John has been saying about Jesus, about who, who this man is, who he really is and what it is that he's like, that we would listen to this story of this trial and that we would be mindful of what it is that, uh, that Jesus is ultimately going to achieve. We would listen to it in the context of this ongoing conflict with the priests and with their, their delusion in mind that they've just got something big wrong. And I want us to listen to it. And for me, this is the big one. This is the thing that's on my heart today, that we would listen to it, recognising that God is not the one pulling the strings here. Rather, this is God leaving humanity to our own devices. That's what this story is about. It's God leaving us to our own murderous and brutal devices and then acting graciously, acting providentially, acting redemptively in the midst of our rebellion. So in terms of a little bit of context, we're still in those hours after uh, the Last Supper. So that was right back in John chapter 13. So 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. These these chapters are all kind of taking place um, across one evening um, overnight and into the early hours of the morning. Jesus has prayed his, his prayer to his father in the garden, that great prayer in John chapter 17. He's been betrayed by one of his own disciples, by Judas. He's been arrested by the temple priest and their guards, along with another 480 of their Roman soldier mates, uh, who all fell down when Jesus just revealed something of a glimpse of his true identity. Jesus was then dragged off, dragged off, bound but willing. He was dragged off to the high priest's house where he was questioned by by Annas and by Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. Annas was his father-in-law and kind of ran the temple business. Pretty lucrative, it turned out. And Jesus has also demonstrated that he has the power, he has the authority to put a stop to it all whenever he might like to do that. But he submits. He submits. And this is the sacrifice right here, self-sacrifice. He has already chosen to lay his life down. So John chapter 18, 28 through to 19, verse 16, the words will not be up on the screen. And so I'm going to encourage you that you would grab out your Bible. Um, So... Pete's got a, got a physical Bible. Unreal. I'm going to use this. Um, have you got your Bible? We've got a phone. Who's, who's got that? John chapter 18, verse 28. Show me that you've got it. Excellent. Well done, three of you. <laughs> um, so do your best to, to follow along with me. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us now. So, Lord, as, as we look at this story, 
Would you speak to us, please? Would you help us to see with the eyes of our heart, help us to hear in new ways what it is that's going on in this story? Let it not just be some uh, distant, emotionless, disconnected, irrelevant thing. Show us how it connects with us, what it means to us. In this story, would you reveal something about who you are and who you are like and something about who we are, who we are like and how you love us in the midst of that. Be with us, we pray. Amen. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? So the the trial where the charges were laid and that that Jesus was to be either found guilty or not guilty, that's already happened. So that was the trial with with the high priest. Um, And he has been found guilty. That's no surprise. That was a fait accompli. Um, It certainly was not a fair trial. And the priests have already sentenced him to death. Now, they've already been trying to kill him for a while. So we've seen that through, through John's account. But now they've got him. Now they've got him and now they actually need to be taking him to Pilate and the reason why they need to do that is is going to be made clear shortly. This trial before Caiaphas, before the high priest, it ended in the early hours of the morning. So it was a trial that took place in the dark. The light of the world was interrogated in the dark. And then get this, I reckon John is probably shaking his head while he's writing this down. The the priests refused to go into the governor's headquarters because it was a place of Gentiles. And so if the priests had gone into the governor's house, then that would have defiled them and they would not be able to take place, um, or they would not be able to participate in the Passover celebrations. And so can you see the hypocrisy here that John's just wanting to to point out? They're wanting to celebrate that time that that God liberated the the entire Israelite nation from slavery. They want to make sure that they're religiously clean so they can celebrate that. All the while, they're orchestrating the execution of the Messiah. So they wouldn't come in, so Pilate goes out to them and says, what's the charge? And the high priests say back, they say, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. And so they're dodging the question entirely. So no, no charge is offered at that, that point. What we know is that the Jews' charge against Jesus was blasphemy, that he was claiming to be the son of God, the I am, the Messiah, which of course is not a Roman crime. Pilate couldn't care less. What have you brought him here for? Take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them, verse 31. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. And so this is why they've come to Pilate. So prior to Roman occupation, the Jews would have taken a blasphemer uh, outside of the city and they would have stoned them to death. They would have been down on the ground and they would would have stoned them publicly. But under the Pax Romana, the Roman 
peace. The, the Romans took that authority off off the Jews, off the, off the priests, and reserved that for themselves. Only Romans could, could sentence somebody to death. Now, we've kind of already seen that, that the Jews are happy to ignore that law. They, they, they were happy to stone the woman who was caught in, in adultery. We also know that when we fast forward into Acts, that, that they stoned Stephen to death as well. But here they're after something more. What they want here is, is, the, is the legitimacy of, of a trial and a public execution at Roman hands, a public denouncement. And so they've got to go to Pilate. Otherwise, Jesus might be seen as, as a martyr and then the whole world would go after him. And so by, by legally, publicly trying and, and executing Jesus, they're hoping to avoid some of that. And then, then in verse 32, John gives us one of his helpful little sidebars. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. So stoning by the Jews, that, that normal mode of execution, that's now off the table. And Jesus himself prophesied back in chapter 12, and I think he did it a couple of other times, um, that he would be lifted up, which is exactly what happens on a cross. If we read the, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and, and Luke, we, we see that, that Jesus predicts his death three times and on the third time that he predicts his, his death, he does it with like this incredible amount of detail, with this incredible foreknowledge. Matthew records this, this third prediction um, with Jesus saying this about himself, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and then they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he would be raised on the third day. So this incredibly precise foreknowledge, Jesus knows everything that is going to be taking place. We even see it all the way back in Psalm 22. We see it in, in Isaiah 53, that these predictions of how Jesus is going to die. Now remember, there's only, there's only two groups of people at, at this time. As far as the Jews are concerned, there's Jews and there's everyone else. There's Gentiles. And so here, um, both groups are implicated. Everybody's implicated in what's going on here with the trial, the sentencing and execution. Verse 33. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and he called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? It's kind of typical for Jesus to answer a question with a question. He does that a lot. Um, but I reckon that even here that Jesus is concerned with the state of Pilate's heart. This is the who do you say that I am question. And so even with this complete knowledge of everything that's going, going on and everything that's going to happen, Jesus is inquiring after Pilate. Is this your question, Pilate? Who do you say that I am? Now also, like in what, in what court would the accused have to name the charges that are being brought against them? Surely that's the court's job, isn't it? This is the charge that's brought before you. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? I think the pilot is still 
trying to figure out what's going on. Like he's very much aware that the, that the high priest have just dropped him in some kind of almighty mess. And so in, in verse 35 he says, Am I a Jew? Your own people and their leading priest brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Your own people. Back in John 1 verse 11, John writes, He came to his own people and even they rejected him. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. I'm a different kind of king. It's not a Jewish kingdom. My kingdom doesn't function in the ways of this world. I'm not the kind of king that attacks or defends with military might. In fact, the one bloke who did try to do it, I had to bring him back into line and say, Peter, put your sword away. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say, I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognise what I say is true. You say that I am a king. They're your words, Pilate. I'm here for a bigger purpose than, than to just claim some kind of political position. I'm here to reveal ultimate reality. I'm here to expose ultimate truth. This is Jesus telling Pilate the whole reason for the incarnation. And so you and I should sit up and pay attention to this too. This is why Jesus came. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth, to testify to what God is really like. And in fact, Pilate, I'm making that testimony right before you now. The truth is that before the establishment of the earth, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son over to the fullness of, of the self-absorbed, murderous, power-hungry violence of his own creation so that he might redeem all of it. Jesus is not here to complete a transaction. Jesus is not here to fulfil an obligation. He's not here to rescue a situation gone wrong. Jesus is here to testify to the truth. And the truth is revealed and it's present right here in front of you, Pilate. And the nature and the character of that truth is going to be made abundantly clear on the cross. What is truth? Pilate asked. A rhetorical question, it seems. We don't know whether this question is specifically about this moment and, and, and Pilate just trying to wrestle with what on earth's going on here. The high priests have dropped me in it and I can't, try, I can't quite see what it is that's going on. What is truth? How do I deal with this? Maybe it's a much, much bigger question than that. We've just caught Pilate in the middle of an existential crisis. What is truth? 
What we do know is that the truth is standing right in front of him. Pilate, you think that you have the power to set Jesus free. But if you only knew the truth, the truth would set you free. Then he went out again to the people and he told them, he is not guilty of any crime. Verse 39. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? And so here, here is this political manoeuvre on, on Pilate's part. So by, by releasing Jesus as this one prisoner who is released each year at Passover, he, he's agreeing that he's guilty. He is a prisoner. So if I set this one prisoner free, he is guilty, but I'm setting him free. And so at the same time, he's able to declare guilt while not executing a man for whom Pilate cannot see any guilt. Does that make sense? So it's a political thing. So he's trying to get the, these, these Jewish leaders off his back. But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. So the New Living Translation says revolutionary. The word here also just means thief. It means robber. Release the thief. That's our preference. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Condemn the truth. Release the thief. The thief is much easier to deal with. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked as they slapped him in the f across the face. So this scourging with a, with a lead-tipped whip, probably with bits of bone and things in it as well, it is a brutal and, and bloody and inhumane punishment. It is designed to, to rip flesh from the body right down to the bone. And the idea that somebody would be scourged and then would also be executed was kind of unheard of. Pilate went outside again and he said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the, and the purple robe and Pilate said, look, here is the man. Behold the man, some translations say. And some will even capitalise the M, the man. Surely the, the bloody evidence of this hideous torture would satisfy the priests. When they saw him, the leading priest and the temple guards began shouting. Crucify him. Crucify him. 
Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. And so there's the charge, blasphemy. This is our law. He called himself the Son of God. This is not a Roman crime. But Pilate is worried. If you read the other gospel accounts, then uh, you'll, you'll know that Pilate's wife came to him and she, and she said, Pilate, don't have anything to do with this man. I've been kept up all night with these dreams and these nightmares. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and he asked him, where are you from? Jesus gave no answer. And it sounds like a strange question. Where are you from? If you do a bit of a phrase search on this question, um, you'd be surprised how many times this comes up. Where, where are you from? It's a, it's a question of credential, of legitimacy. Back in John 7, Jesus was teaching in the temple and, and people are starting to cotton on to the idea that this might actually be the Messiah. But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. And while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me and you know where I come from. But I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I come from him. And he sent me to you. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded, don't you realise that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. What we're seeing here is not the predeterminism of God. God is not pulling the strings here. God is not controlling Pilate. God is not willing or orchestrating the sentencing of his own son to death. Rather, this is the free and unfettered rebellion of humanity. This is treason against the creator. And God, knowing what is in the human heart, has permitted it. And God cannot, Pilate cannot overrule what God has permitted. So Pilate, you are participating in this rebellion. But the one who has handed me over to you has the greater sin. Who is this? Well, we can think straight away that this is, this is perhaps Judas. Certainly truth in that. You could also argue that it was Satan himself who entered into Judas's heart back in chapter 13. But the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate was Caiaphas, the high priest. Hold on to that thought. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. So they've changed tactics. It's not a Roman problem, but we're going to make it one. 
or at least we're going to try to make it seem like one. We're going to make ourselves look like compliant and, and obedient subjects with the, with the interests of the empire at heart. Bollocks. It's the whole point of the Messiah. The whole point of the, the Messiah is to, is to restore Jewish sovereignty, to get rid of the occupiers. Verse 31. When, when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat, on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover and Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Jesus stands before the judgment seat. Creation judging creator. And under the pressure of all these surrounding voices and demands and accusations, creation's judgment is death. How the tables are going to turn. When soon all of creation will stand before the judgment seat of God. Or rather the mercy seat. Jesus says this in, in John 12, verse 46 to 50. You might remember, remember it. I have come into the world as light so that anyone who believes in me won't need to stay in the dark. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I'm not going to judge them. That wasn't why I came. I came to save the world and not to judge it, not to condemn it. Anyone who rejects me and doesn't hold to my words has a judge though. The word which I have spoken will judge them on the last day. I haven't spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me gave, him, gave me his own commandment about what I should say and speak. And I know that his command is the life of the coming age. What I speak then is what the Father has told me to speak. And so the world's judgment of God is death. God's judgment of the world, spoken through Christ, is life. I have come that they may have life. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priests shouted back. The role of the priest is to mediate between God and people. It is to represent the people before God and represent God before the people. And so the leading priests, the high priests in Jerusalem represent the highest order of mediation, mediating humanity before God. And with this representative authority, they declare, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Do not think for one second that this trial is the, is the condemnation of, of God, that it took place by God's own hand, by his will or by his manipulation. To blame God, to say that it, was, that it was his doing, his initiative, his will that his own son, that his triune self 
would be falsely accused and sentenced, to blame God is to let humanity off the hook for the greatest crime ever committed. It is to let humanity off the hook for the greatest rebellion, the greatest act of treason, the greatest sin for which we are all implicated. How dare we blame God for our treason? Now, did God knowingly, willingly, redemptively walk into this trap? Well, then yes, he did. And will he utterly redeem it? Will he use it as the basis of cosmic redemption? You betcha. How dare we blame God for killing Christ? Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. There is no neat bow on today's message. We are squarely in that place of injustice, that place of coordinated and willful rebellion. And we need to allow the truth of that its own dignity. But I cannot emphasise enough how important it is that we exonerate the Father for the death of the Son. N.T. Wright says that we've taken John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And for some reason, what we've heard is that God so hated the world that he killed his only son. And I know that this isn't true for everybody. But some of us, me, some of us have, have grown up with a theology that effectively makes God responsible For the cross. That God the Father instigated, that he willed, that he coordinated the death of the Son as a sacrificial payment for the forgiveness of sins. Some of us have been fed a theology that in order to receive this satisfaction, that the Father was the one behind the scenes determining every event. That Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the rest of us too, they were all just puppets playing some predetermined role set in place by a powerful and a controlling God and then we even call it sovereignty. Of course, if this were true, then no repentance, no forgiveness and no redemption would be required. If God were pulling the strings, then then Judas and Caiaphas and Annas, they're all just playing their pre-scripted part and they're off the hook and there is really only one sinner. Now, will God cause all of these things to converge according to his will? Yes. That's what a redeemer does. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that God will cause everything to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. What Paul does not say is that God causes all things. This deterministic error, it often goes hand in hand with a misunderstanding of sacrifice that that suggests that God requires payment, that he requires restitution, satisfaction from some third-party sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And this error is right at the heart of the pharisaical delusion. And this is what Jesus has come to finally bust. Even though for centuries the prophets were were trying to make the same point. 
Your picture of God is wrong. You'll remember this, Micah chapter 6. I'll start from verse 3. This is God speaking to his people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. First, I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed, how, how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey, journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. When I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. And then, then humanity responds to God. Well, what can we bring to the Lord? Shall we bring him burnt offerings? Shall we bow before God most high with offerings of yearly calves? Shall we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? The prophet responds, no. O people, O Israel, the Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you. What is it? Love mercy. Do justice. Walk humbly with your God. Hosea 6, 6. O Israel, O Judah, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices, I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Psalm 51.16 and 17, a psalm of David. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you require is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Isaiah Chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. God speaking to the Israelites, speaking to the high priest, speaking to the leaders. He says, listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of, of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want your sacrifices, says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of, of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days of fasting, they're sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. When you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourself and be clean. Get your sins out of, me, out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Jesus himself says in Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. We need to remember this as we approach the cross.
To think that God the Father requires the brutal sacrifice of his only begotten Son as the payment for the forgiveness of sins is the most heinous of theological errors. It dismembers the Trinity. It makes a monster out of God. And it falls into the same pharisaical trap that landed Jesus in Pilate's court to begin with. What we see here in this debacle of a trial is not the pathetic indulgences of a needy and a, and a deterministic God. Rather, this is the wrath of humanity being poured out on God's Son. It is the insatiable human desire to claim the status of God for ourselves. It is the sin of the garden now fully mature and placing the divine creator in Pilate's kangaroo court. And even amid the murderous rejection from his own people, we see a gracious God who knows that love is the fruit of a free will. Even when that free will craves power and autonomy. Instead of a bloodthirsty puppeteer in this scene, we see a God who still holds out hope that when we finally have a revelation of his love, that by our own accord that every knee would bow that every tongue would confess, that we would confess our rebellion and we would de declare him Lord. Instead of a needy tyrant, we see a redeemer. We see a redeemer who knows the human heart, a redeemer who transcends all of space and, and time and will take even our ultimate murderous treason and he will turn it into the raw material of redemption. Let's pray.